Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, so now to tonight's event. Um, all the emergency type structures is uh, what we're going to be hearing from today. Um, it, it, the book uh, guides readers through a lyrical and incisive examination of a potential way to navigate scientifically predicted apocalyptic visions, the destructive beauty of family, and the dense forests of our collective cultural uncertainties as we attempt to create spaces that feel like home amid rising seas, private space expeditions to Mars, births, breakups, terrifying dreams, and mass extin extinction, extinction events. Um, Elizabeth Cantwell is the author of Nights I Let the Tiger Get You, a finalist for the 2012 Hudson Prize. She is also the author of a chapbook, Premonitions. Um, All the Emergency Type Structures was a finalist for the National Poetry Series and the regional winner of the 2018 Hillary Gravendick Prize. Please help me give a warm welcome to Elizabeth. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks to Skylight Books for having me here, and thank you all for coming out. It's great to see everybody here. Um, all right, I just wanted to start off with a poem that's not mine because I kind of like to set the tone with um, something I didn't write because I'm better at judging those things. Um, so I want to start off with a poem by James Tate, who's a poem that, he's a poet that I really, really loved and admired, um, and definitely I was probably an influence on this book in various ways. Um, it's called Never Again the Same. Speaking of sunsets, last night's was shocking. I mean, sunsets aren't supposed to frighten you, are they? Well, this one was terrifying. People were screaming in the streets. Sure, it was beautiful, but far too beautiful. It wasn't natural. One climax followed another and then another until your knees went weak and you couldn't breathe. The colors were definitely not of this world. Peaches dripping opium, pandemonium of tangerines, inferno of irises, plutonian emeralds all swirling and churning, swabbing like it was playing with us, like we were nothing, as if our whole lives were a preparation for this, this for which nothing could have prepared us and for which we could not have been less prepared. The mockery of it all stung us bitterly. And when it was finally over, we whimpered and cried and howled. And then the streetlights came on, as always, and we looked into one another's eyes, ancient caves with still pools, and those little transparent fish who have never seen even one ray of light. And the calm that returned to us was not even our own. I like that one a lot. All right, um, I want to start with maybe just one from my first book, Nights I Let the Tiger Get You. It's an oldie but maybe a goodie, I don't know. Um, I wanted to start with a poem that I feel like reading it retrospectively played into some of the themes that I've been more interested in dealing with recently. So this is called More Details Emerge. Maybe you're supposed to give some sort of ghost tour. Maybe you're tasked with taking people through the streets and making up stories about dead apothecaries and mourning wives. When the feeling gets to your hand on the doorknob, you know you're going to open it now no matter what. I want to be alone and quiet, 
But there's always some new axe cutting through the unfinished side of my house. There's always someone I have to be accountable to standing there with an empty pillowcase whispering, fill it up. And my hands are empty and the glass bowl in front of me is empty and I keep showing them that but they seem to think I'm made of individually wrapped candies. Please walk slowly up to the lens until you're almost in focus. Place the yellow light on top of the ceiling fan and step away. Please look in the mirror for me and tell me what I should be seeing. What is women's writing anyway? Sometimes I think about how broken my body is. I think maybe the only thing that understands how I see the fragments of myself is Peyton Manning's neck, refused and covered in question mark scars. Maybe you're supposed to tell the tourists to stay home tonight, to wait for Halloween. I'm always opening the door to the same threat over and over, and every time it looks like love. All right. Uh, okay. Now I'll do one from my chapbook. I'm just gonna do, like zoom through the early stuff, and then we'll hit like the new stuff, and then we'll do some newer, newer stuff. We'll see what happens. Okay. This one's called Without Lungs. There was a man in the hospital without lungs. He was hooked up to a big machine with bellows and levers. What is it like to have no lungs, I asked him. I don't know, he said. Where I come from, no one has lungs. The air felt thick. Where is that, where you come from, I asked. The man looked surprised. Here, he said. This has always been my home. I looked around the hospital. Everywhere, the people carried their own lung machines. I raised my arms above my head as if to try to feel the weight. Later, I walked out by the lake. The birds were very calm and blue. Around me, the substantial kind of stillness that only happens when you're discovering something everyone else already knew. The size of the hurt depends on the size of the lie. I lay down on the grass by the lake and looked up at the sky. There were so many breaths to be taken, and around me the sound of all the trains I'd ever known, passing me by, passing me by, passing me by. Okay, so uh, my new book, All the Emergency Type Structures, um, it was a lovely introduction from Ben. It is sort of post-apocalyptic, but not, I don't know. I hesitate to use that word because it's used a lot. Um, I think there's a lot of, definitely a lot of climate change anxiety in the book. It was written, a lot of the poems were written a couple years ago, so now it feels a little, like I could have probably pushed that a little more. <laughs> Two years in, I'm like, oh, yeah. Could have, could have pushed that one harder. Um, a little bit about sort of domestic anxieties um, and then probably a bunch of other themes I didn't realize were in there while I was writing it, so. Uh, this is called Situations of Casual Danger. On the question of skinny genes, science has mostly made clear they will not kill you. Blood clots seem not to be a threat. Set down by the side of the bed, dormant, they even appear welcoming, safe. So few carefree places remain. The smartphones could catch fire. The bookshelves could peel from the walls. The snap peas could harbor E. coli. The car tires could begin rolling without warning. In such situations of casual danger, one must be on guard against desire. Do not touch the flesh like that. Do not allow a dilation of the pupils. Put down the potty and collect a pole some tree branches, pine needles, enough vegetation to heap two to three feet deep across the protective rib-like sides of the structure that will house you. If you find yourself short on brush, you may erect a shelter using only carefully chosen language. 
The view outside may be frightening. Giant beetles devouring water drops, a man in a wolf's mask carving honeydew. Don't panic. This will soon seem like home. The wildflowers are so lovely here. And the words, peeling off your skin in ribbons, weave their mesh nets stronger by the hour. Housewarming. The garden the previous tenants left is abandoned, save for a handful of peppers thumbing tenacious flesh at the heat. I roll our trash cans next to them. I am replete with June, high noon. I am convinced there is something medically wrong with me. My voice has been hoarse for a month, my digestion off. I wake up in the early hours of the morning with my heart beating like a hundred clocks. The sun is a heavy hot smock curling over my shoulders. There is a pocket inside each of us that, pushed sharply enough, could pop could ask us to take the knife out of the kitchen and plunge it into the dirt until it hits bone, to feel that sick, sad, yes, severed roots hissing through the mess in the palms. Let us now undress the world. Let us peel off its crust, its mantle, its outer core. Let us find the poor, sore soul at its center, covered over in grief and triggered and worn to its own tiny world bone. Let us reach in and draw it out through the blood and muscle and pulsing skin transplant it somewhere inside ourselves, holding on, lying down in the middle of it all, tall, tall bodies exposed to space. Only then will this place feel like home. I guess on the home thread, um, I'm going to read one now called The People Who Live in Boats. It is easy to become one of the people who live in boats. You can actually make the decision yourself. All you need is a boat and a body of water, unless you want to be one of the people who live in boats in their driveways, which is certainly the less attractive option. There are many rules having to do with living in boats. The people who live in boats must not know how to swim. Otherwise, there is a danger that one evening, looking down deeply into the black mirror shimmering against the side of their permanent residence, they might realize it looks like the dream they have been trying to get inside of for years. They might imagine it, the slowly opening bloom they have held their breath waiting to smell. The people who live in boats must have to winnow their possessions. The people who live in boats perhaps did not have that many possessions to begin with, knowing that they were the sort of people who would end up living on boats. They steered clear of the bookcases, the porcelain figures, the baseballs in their clear glass cases. The people who live in boats must love whiskey, hate taxidermy, feel largely indifferent towards types of lighting fixtures. The people who live in boats must have ears that look blue in the moonlight, and if you embrace one of them, your shirt must come away feeling damp. The people who live in boats are all around us. If you were to live in a boat, you would wake up one morning and realize that the skin on your face was slowly turning a slick, cool gray. No one would be able to tell from behind. But in profile, it would be quite obvious. The translucency, the minnowing, the eye with the inner lid. There is a river in New Zealand that was just granted the same legal rights as a human being. The tribe that fought for its human recognition believes strongly that it is one of their ancestors. We can trace our genealogy to the origins of the universe, says the lead negotiator for the tribe. And therefore, rather than us being masters of the natural world, we are a part of it. The people who live in boats must become familiar with the blurry boundary between kin and predator. The people who live in boats must travel far but stay in the same sphere. The people who live in boats must curl up every night in their gently rocking beds and, 
growing silently bigger in sleep, dream the globe alive. Uh, we have a paleontologist who works at the school I work at, and he bought my book, and he was like, I'm so excited to read it, and I immediately felt like I had to tell him, like, I'm sorry, there are no poems about dinosaurs, because I felt guilty that I hadn't written a poem about dinosaurs. But then he uh, pulled me over in the lunchroom the other day, and he said, there is a poem about woolly mammoths. And I was like, you're right. I did write a poem about woolly mammoths. So I failed a little less in, in the paleontologist's eyes. Uh, so I'm going to read that poem now. We are all capable of enlightenment, of hastening our own demises. You are wrong about the mammoths. They didn't give up on some snowy plain, tired and old, hunted by the other. You should know this, the way you pride yourself on the truth. If you imagined them scared, sad, dying alone, arrows in their sides as a man stood over them, you were wrong. Those mammoths in their taxidermy displays, their tusks, you should know a group of them kept living on a tiny island long after their fellow mammoths died, millennia passing, the last few herds swelling over the hills, the crater lake like a finger pushing slowly into the flesh on the side of your neck, a small drop of silvered mercury suspended in the air, the sea seeping beneath the isle. You were wrong when you imagined me scared, Sad, not yet sure how to navigate the topography. How little you knew. The honey dripping off the tips of my fingers like blood. In the picture, I am not even smiling. The ocean stretches out behind me like a jewel trapped in a case. I'd spent the whole night with my eyes wide open. There is something inside that wants to fall endlessly through swaths of purple velvet, to land on its back hard, to black out, to come to in a mess of limbs, to forget the names of the children. It's dark, and I know exactly how to be here. The lone, shallow, freshwater lakes shimmering and shrinking in the hotter north air, the water saltier and saltier, the mouths more and more desirous. You must have guessed by now. We are all agents of our own destruction. You, camera in hand, unable to see me as anything but a child, the giant feet anxious tramping down the banks by the last cool pools, tracking a ticking clock, knocking away the minutes left, the brackish water rising, the light in the eye, the paradise of feeling your brain expand until it touches the other side. You should know by now that your rush to suck the last sweet drops from the surface could only have made it worse, the touch on the arm the dried salt crystals left behind, the picture folded at the bottom of the secret suitcase, an island heavy with dead bodies, aching for diamond streams, for heavy breathing, for the chance to do it again. That's actually true. I read about this, that the, there was like an island of woolly mammoths that lived a really long time after all the other mammoths were extinct and they destroyed themselves by being so heavy that they were just there and they were drinking all the water and the water was gone off the island and then it was just all salt water and the island was like you know just full of salt water and then they died so um similar to people maybe i don't know the parallels are there <laughs> i mean woolly mammoths were cool maybe we were too who knows um okay um, I do I do have two small children, and so sometimes in my anxiety about the impending end of everything, I think about them, um, and I think about what they are inheriting and what their futures will be. Um, the most positive I felt, by the way, recently was when we went to the aquarium and they had this like amazing video display of 
future Earth, and it was a, so cool. Oh, do you have a question? No. I liked your hand, though. Um, there was just an amazing, like, video display of all of these cool future cities, and my husband and I left feeling super positive about, you know, well, we can change this. It's great. We'll get all the carbon out of the air. And then my husband was like, I think that was funded by a nuclear power facility. And I was like, yeah, but it looked good. All right. called, We Will Go However Far Is Necessary to Make It Cohere. The pushing from the inside makes its own topography. In your lifetime, you may have to do this again. Take a pre-existing body, reshape it, make it something you could inhabit. In the future, everyone will be his own burning bush, a flame but not consumed, presumed outside of the cosmic void it seems we populate. As a great, great thinker once said, small grammatical changes in the personal mission statement could create a new trajectory, high and wide and without precedent. In the future, I will call you lovely from beyond the grave, and by lovely, I will mean a thousand things but largely guilt, preparing to embrace your perhaps inhuman face. What world will you grow used to? Octopuses in the parking structures, white supremacists in the pictures with roses around them, icebergs the size of Delaware, endless, endless thumbs. In your lifetime, you may rise above it, alone, sheathed in cold, hair made of glass, weaving a wreath out of what we've detached ourselves from, throwing it into the black, orbiting a single small offering we've left for whatever we've been tapestried into, stepping back to see it more clearly, but seeing only our own distorted features, stepping back again and back and back. Another inexpensive solution with a big payoff. We bought a house recently, so now I have a house. I want to stress that this is not an allegorical house. This is a real live house. One thing you have to do with houses is decorate them. Make them look like they are real places where real people live and love each other and have inspiration. This inspiration often takes the form of vases and cleverly arranged unread books. Did you know that when you are decorating a house, you are also helping to shape its personality? Every house has a personality. Some are type A's pretending to be chill. Some are immigrants. Some are cool blue pools with nothing inside and no bottom. Some are anxious to see you leave. Some are sad, withdrawn, high, high up, so interested in turning on the fan and closing their eyes. I don't know how to live in a house or how to inhabit space. I don't know what shade of tinted primer to use. I am a tall, strange silence with no feet. Everyone keeps telling me about self-care. Most mornings I wake up and I fucking hate myself, which seems positive. It seems like a step in the right direction. When I was younger, I wanted to go off the grid, to leave society and live in the wilderness in a cabin in Maine. And now, here I am. I just bought a house in the suburbs. I drink kale smoothies, and I like them. I enjoy going to Target. I follow Kim Kardashian on Instagram, ironically. In my house, when you enter, I want to have a big skull and a defaced portrait of Lee Harvey Oswald, just very casual-like, displayed above a tasteful brown urn full of baby's breath. I want to fill one room entirely with pieces of confetti on which I have printed the word fuck, so tiny, so only a tiny person could read it. I am probably gonna go with neutrals for the living room and dining room areas. 
From the backyard, I want some spiders to creep in. They will be wet. They will look like they have been through a weather event. I want the bedroom crammed with empty glass cases. I want the kitchen angry and thick with steam. I know I cannot avoid mirrors. I put on three layers of skincare products this morning, sensitive skin eye cream, anti-wrinkle moisturizer, tinted sunscreen. I am obsessed with thinking about what the thing is that will come into my life and destroy it. Will it be cancer? Will it be the death of a child? Will it be an accident? It was just a normal morning and we had coffee like we do every morning and then. Will it be the suicide of a friend? Will it be the slow attrition of passion until I can no longer bring myself to chop avocado, touch my husband, read a novel, laugh by accident, until I am a slow dark cradle rocking somewhere beneath the continent? I am trying not to think like this. I have a house to decorate. Uh, okay, this one is sort of about bees, um, sort of about people who want to live forever. Uh, I also wrote a lot of it after listening to that podcast, S-Town, which I think a lot of people listen to, which like took a hard turn halfway through. If you've never heard of that podcast, it's great. Um, and I, I was just walking around my neighborhood thinking of things in my head, and I came up with this. Emergency queen. Sometimes, honestly, I'm exhausted from all the rallying, accosted on all sides by this eternal series of events going wrong and then hanging there, the theories about whether or not it was worth it, the earth crumbling around the edges of the pot in the wrong pattern, the gray hairs, the unforeseen exhaustion. I know why the queens in those hives gorge themselves on royal jelly, quelling any minor cell's desire to give up, to succumb to it. Her life, a lengthening buzz, as much as 70 times longer than the worker bees around her. Freeze a day, multiply it, try to guess how someone else could ever know the length of your particular hour. If a queen dies unexpectedly, the bees in this queenless colony will build new, large, and somewhat slapdash cells to produce an emergency queen who's usually smaller, less prolific. It's true, all the leading immortalists had fathers who died young. All started out in tech, all are men, all love the sound of never, never sag, never ache, never drag, never break, the waking, always the same, the clock check, the supplement regimen, the under-seasoned food. Who'd have thought living forever could be so little fun? The hyperbaric chamber out of the way behind the couch, the mouse in the lab crouched over, not looking as spry as you'd hoped, the slope of senescent cells, the hum of the rough knee, to be free from the minutes. Life is but a shadow, the shadow of a bird on the wing, the bird above singing, the ringing in your ears. You walk the maze you made, you get lost in it. The time of your life is now, now the gift and the punishment, now the slow sand spooling out its minute knives on your hand, now the land stretching out like the pool that birthed you, blue and warm and boxed in, so enclosed. Mocks, knocks, I want to add wishes. Look at my shadow and you will see your life. The youthful profile wavers in the wind, smells like dried flowers, Spigalia marilandica, a hummingbird favorite, all this nightly torpor and so little rest. I would build you a nest that never unraveled, Tempus edax rerum. Lie here with me on the porch and listen to the dogs bark until the queenless beings around us begin to cement the cells that will usher in the new era that will begin the beautiful and possible descent. All right, 
I'm going to do one more from this book. Um, and then I'm going to maybe read like something I wrote a couple days ago. This one's called Matinee. It was a windy day, and I wasn't sure when I might next get an afternoon to myself, so I decided to go see a movie. I brought a bottle of water. I brought my poncho in case I got cold. One often gets cold at the movie theater. There were a lot of previews, and the guy behind me said, so many previews, to his wife in the kind of annoyed voice that tells you people are annoyed at something obviously happening right in front of everybody's faces. He was very easy to hear, as it was only me, this couple behind me, and another couple way in the back, and both of the couples were easily octogenarians. In fact, I hadn't seen another person my age in the whole place, just me and the octogenarians. In a horror movie, maybe there would have been some plot revolving around all this, all the elderly people in town kidnapping all the younger people in the town out of jealousy or spite or just for kicks. Because where do you get your kicks as an octogenarian if you're not kidnapping people in their 20s and 30s? Maybe holding them in moldy basements for a while just as a lark, feeding them old bits of ham from your refrigerator. Then going to the movies, which would turn out to be the source of new victims. I imagined how such a film would end. In a movie theater, of course, the final girl running down the aisles in her nightgown, setting the screens on fire as she ran, bursting through the flames for a triumphant confrontation with the evil manifested in these bodies all around her. It would have to be a spectacular finish. The catch, of course, would be that she, too, was aging, and you'd see her in the sequel, grinning in the dark, a single candle next to her, having turned into the thing she'd thought she'd defeated. I took a sip of my water. The movie had already started. On the screen, a small boy who I swear looked just like my son was eating a hamburger. I think I started to cry right away. All these tiny relics of the body, and where do they go? Something that used to be skin, papery, disintegrating in the soft recesses of our carpets. I could feel my face refusing to match the shape of the face I'd thought I had. So many previews, I could hear the man behind me still saying. So many previews. But the movie has already started, I said, the matches in my purse going cold beneath the seat. All right. Um, so I'm teaching a horror course right now. This is my second round of it. Um, and I feel like, it, like some of it started to get in there, but I've been writing a lot more about monsters. And uh, I have a couple... Frankenstein poems that I think I like, um, Frankenstein influence. So I'm going to read those, and then I'll be done. Okay, let's do some Frankenstein. Um, this one, by the way, is based on a, I don't know if it's a true, true story, but it's a story true enough that it's been reported several places. So I'm really, I hope it's true. Okay, Lichtenberg scarring. When Boris Karloff's fourth wife went into labor with his only daughter, he was on set filming Son of Frankenstein and rushed to the hospital in full makeup, the pale, pale, stitched-on flesh and heavy-lidded eyes swaying, swaying over the gray but rapidly reddening form emerging from the mother, just now coming to terms with the way every love splits you open with fear. I frequently find myself lying awake and imagining all the ways my kids could die, killed in a car crash, struck by a disease too brutal and invasive for any doctor to eradicate, taken from their bedrooms at night by an unseen hand, the skull caved in by the bat, taken down over decades by the slow yet persistent erosion of the mind's will to 
to survive by chemicals in the brain you know are there because you helped encode them in their tiny strands of DNA. Perhaps when Frankenstein saw his monster wake up, it was not the revulsion of the unnatural image that he desired immediately to stamp out, but the instantaneous understanding that only through the death of this thing he had created could he be free of the anxiety and responsibility and unflinching love he had inflicted on himself with a single stroke of electrical discharge. Perhaps he yearned to be Giovanni Ribisi in the X-Files episode, whose ability to absorb and channel lightning leaves him not electrified but empty and craving death, a monster with only himself to animate. In the hospital room, Karloff touches his wife's hair. Tears flow down the sides of his caked-on face that is also not his face. Did the daughter see her father as a creature too empathetic to live successfully in this world, to be able to smile while lying to her about how most people in this world are good? What do we inherit and what do we pass on? The thirst for creating something that scares us and yet when I think about my children's faces, of course I want to lie down in a puddle in a thunderstorm and welcome the vaporizing flash. All right, this one's a, a maybe a little less bleak. <laughs> Last one. Worse than the monster was his attitude towards hiking. It's, if you read the book, he's got some weird hiking stuff going on. All right. After it came to life, Frankenstein saw no option but to take his angst to the hills, yelling suicidal things into the sky, hiking in storms, hiking without a guide, hiking too late at night to even see what he was inside of, hiking over glaciers and shoes without good tread or arch support, summiting peaks on a whim before lunch, shouting at lakes, what were rain and storm to me, leaving a true legacy, all the hiking bros up at 5 a.m., mansplaining the nuances of the trail, leaving many traces, free soloing El Cap while entertaining fantasies of bringing light into darkness, thinking while doing pull-ups with just our fingers in this little camping trailer beneath the sheer rock face, a new species would bless me as its creator and source. I have known the white men in their sleeveless shirts, pounding green juice and tightening the straps on their REI day packs for whom conquering a difficult trail is like sizing up a woman for her likelihood to provide sexual release, seducing her and then moving on to the next, descending rapidly from a great height to gulp down electrolytes and shower and text someone about their transformational experience, desiring a fountain of offspring that require no responsibility for a single life other than their own, a life that, ironically, may end up belonging to a better hiker than you, one that may end up venturing even further into some twisted male fantasy of dominance and invulnerability that will use its decision to be vegetarian as a leverage to claim its moral and ethical superiority, even as it leeches the life out of the one person you truly held dear who of course is a woman behind the scenes fighting against unjust systems doing her best to assert agency in an emotionally abusive relationship the tree that shouldn't be growing out of the rock at the end of a switchback marking a turn necessary for persistence that too many who pass through judge overly laborious and determine instead to cut thank you so much You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.